Talk to me, like you talk to someone you love. Zapraszam, Joanna Chmura. As you will see, English will follow, but for now I'm going to introduce Magnus in Polish um, for the Polish listeners. Uh, witajcie, cześć. Przed Wami rozmowa, moja rozmowa z Magnusem Lindqvist. I to jest rozmowa, która się zrodziła, chociaż jeszcze o tym nie wiedziałam, parę lat temu, cztery albo pięć, ciągle nie mogę sobie zapamiętać, kiedy była ta konferencja, kiedy poznałam Magnusa i kiedy robiłam z nim wywiad do personelu i zarządzanie. Jeśli macie gdzieś w archiwach tę gazetę, to znajdziecie wywiad pisany. I bardzo ta nasza rozmowa bardzo była dla mnie i ciekawa, i intrygująca, interesująca i też taka prawdziwa. I kiedy rozpoczęłam w zeszłym roku e, tworzenie swojego kanału i swoich podcastów, pomyślałam, że on będzie jedną z osób, które chciałabym tutaj zaprosić i porozmawiać o przeszłości, o przyszłości, bo on ze swoją wiedzą, humorem, storytellingowym po prostu rysem będzie znakomitą osobą, żeby nam pokazać, co się wydarzyło w ciągu ostatnich 12 miesięcy i co przed nami. Więc zapraszam Was bardzo serdecznie do tej rozmowy. Jest mi bliska sercu na dwóch poziomach. Po pierwsze takim osobistym, ale też takim zawodowym, bo Mam w sobie jakąś, jakąś wdzięczność na to, że na mojej drodze są stawiane albo stawiają się, albo ja je stawiam osoby, które, od których mogę się uczyć, które są dla mnie inspiracją, które są dla mnie takim motorem też działań. I taką osobą jest Magnus. Magnus aktualnie mieszka w Szwecji i jak się dowiecie z naszej rozmowy, aplikował właśnie do szkoły policyjnej. A cała soczysta rozmowa już przed Wami. So Magnus, I just tell, told them that um, that you're gonna you have all the answers for us, <laughs> all the answers to all the questions, difficult questions. But let me start first with this one. When, when you're trying to explain what do you do for a living, wh what exactly do you say? Well, first of all, thank you, Joanna. Cinque. Uh, <laughs> it's um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be a part of your your channel here tonight. Um, When people ask me what I do for a living, it depends on whether I um, am going to do business with them or not. If I'm going to do business, I tend to answer something quite pretentious. I'm a futurologist, transporter. I travel the world in search of good and interesting ideas uh, about what tomorrow might bring for business, for life, for consumers, customers, you name it. But uh, with you... Um, and your friends here tonight, I, I'd probably be a little bit more honest. I'm trying to figure it out as I go, <laughs> as everybody else is as well. You know, I come from, you know, a business background, but most of the things I tried before failed. You know, I had a rock band, I wrote a novel, I worked in advertising, and nothing went particularly well. And then right around 20 years ago, I started giving talks and workshops and lectures about trend spotting and future thinking and it's kept me afloat since mm -hmm. that would be the honest answer oh thank you thank you um but you were honest already when i met you at the con at the hr conference in warsaw four years ago you already said that that although you know some stuff and you can figure it out like the, the, like some some rhythms and trends and and see how things unfold it's it's that kind of job that requires you almost with the same weight focusing on what you know and what you don't know which is a scary thing for an ego because an expert is somebody who knows so i guess my second question is how do you deal with with all the things that you don't know how do you explain it to your clients like this is what we know but this is what we don't know well i think your question basically consists of the answer usually it's about being honest We don't know this, but sometimes we we should know certain things. Like, I mean, it's a difference if you run a big company. If you don't know what your sales statistics are in a particular market, you should probably find out. But when it comes to the future, there are there are uncertainties and 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 low probability events. Um, And just to have an honest conversation is usually enough because people don't necessarily mm -hmm. hire me. Um, for some kind of magical wish that I'm going to predict what tomorrow will bring. Usually I'm there more to provide some kind of intellectual acupuncture mm -hmm. to give, a, like Coldplay said, a, a rush of blood to the head. Um, 
you know, make them ask perhaps some new questions or, or see some things uh, around them, which I guess is similar to what you do, um, although we are in slightly different disciplines. But it's all about putting a mirror up as well to your clients and saying, look at this. Yeah, it's funny that you're saying because actually... At the very core, I think we do pretty much the same, although I put the mirror towards themselves and you put the mirror towards the reality around us. So I guess that's the only difference. And sometimes we switch the mirror. <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how does, how, or maybe how did the business change in the past 12 months from your point of view, from the Fidrilla's point of well, view? Uh, well, there's less business for most people. Mm -hmm. Unless you do groceries, food, uh, I guess work for Netflix and some other digital services. Most companies have had a, a rapid drop of sales, uh, especially services and hospitality. And uh, most of the money that I used to earn was from traveling and giving talks. And that mm -hmm. has changed completely. So there's, yeah. there's less business. And this um, this is not insignificant. I mean, we've been thinking a lot about the new normal and the post-corona world of work and these quite big, pretentious terms. But I think one of the most important things in the past year is that there's less business and there's an economic downturn. This will, um, well, I think the verdict is out for how long this will stay with mm -hmm. us, but, it, but it, it's probably what most people have been feeling. Mm -hmm. um, then I think there's a difference between what companies think they've been doing and what they've actually been doing. So when I talk to many companies today, they're like, oh, you know, we've been working a hybrid mode or we've been having remote work and we've been rapidly digitalizing and, oh, it's, uh, we don't need offices. And that's what many companies have been telling me. What they've actually been doing is that they have been coping. Right? There was a big shock to the system and they were panicking and they were coping. They haven't been working remotely. They've been working in isolation. That's a big difference, right? Most companies have just had their employees sit at home and interacted with screens like this. That's not remote work. That's work in isolation. And there's a lot of stats showing that it's detrimental both to well-being and productivity. We can talk more about that later. So what I usually show um, my clients today is an image. And I urge you and your followers to Google it. Um, if you Google London Blitz Underground School, those four words. So London Blitz Underground School. You will see that um, in the 1940s, when the Germans bombed London in the Blitz, many Londoners moved into the underground system for shelter. And they not only moved there, they lived there for months on end. And they had schools and beds. And there's even a picture then, which you'll find of students sitting, learning underground, looking happy. And there were probably futurists then who said, this is the new normal. From now on, we're going to live in tunnels. It's much safer. Whereas, of course, any normal person, as soon as the German blitz ended, said, to hell with this. I'm never going to live like an animal in the underground again. And I think something similar. I think we are drawing two big conclusions from extreme events. For the majority of individuals that I've talked to the past 12 months have been various shades of boring and for some even miserable. Mm -hmm. I, I find very few compelling pieces of evidence that we're looking at the future from what's happened over the past 12 months. But that's my opinion. So mm -hmm. feel free to challenge it or question. <laughs> I'm more curious about what are your other... Um... Um, ideas or uh, conceptions about how it's going to affect the way we work, live, because it can go either way. It can go, we're going to so miss being close that we're going to rush back in a year or two, like doing conferences and meeting and traveling, or 
maybe for some it will the COVID thing just opened an idea of, well, I don't have to do all of these. I can just stay at home and or go to Thailand and work from there. So from your point of view, how do you think the future is going to change? How it's going to affect the way we work, live, travel? Well, so I listened to an interview with the founder and CEO of WordPress, mm-hmm. the blog-making engine. And they have... They are built for remote work, but they don't call it remote. They call it working distributedly. So remote work would say, okay, you're going to sit in Thailand, Joanna, and I'm going to sit in Stockholm, and every day at nine, we switch on just to check in. That's remote work. But it also implies that there is a central base. So, um, you know, Revolut, the credit card company recently said that employees are going to be allowed to work from whenever they want two months per year. That's great. That's remote. But but it also says that for the remaining 10 months, you're going to be expected to be at the base. What WordPress has done is that they say, we're going to work distributedly. There is no base. And we don't have to check in at 9 a.m. In fact, nobody has to check in with anyone ever. We're going to work on our own little individual projects and parts of this. And this is going to be true for some skilled people. I mean, Joanna, you've, you run your own business, right? And you, you probably do it you know, because your talents can be freer and you're free to nurture them and you have the talent to do it and it affords you a sense of purpose and, and freedom. I've done that for 20 years, but you and I are not necessarily the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, it might feel so because maybe some people listening in tonight are, are in that state space as well but most people uh, most people um, enjoy a sense of physical movement to go to a place where they do work they enjoy uh, having directives having the comfort of a fixed salary once per month and of course i could as a free spirit say oh but that's the wrong way to go but it's also what the majority of people seem to want So in the short run, I don't think we're going to see a lot of change. In fact, I think a lot of what we're doing here, people are going to be so tired of that for the foreseeable future is going to say, whatever it is, don't make it a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting because I don't want to do it. I'm so tired of it. And that's not necessarily because they want to hug and be close. It's just like the feeling of watching a green dot on a screen at home Mm -hmm. is something that they've done to boredom and death. Um, But to be sure, the world of work has changed for centuries and it will keep on changing. So if we take a 20-year perspective, you know, um, what is a company? What is a task? When we start to combine things like the gig economy and rewarding people through apps and micro tasks, uh, what happens when you know, we start to explore different kinds of media to convey knowledge, Uh, you know, could instead of a written report in the university, could it be a podcast? Could it be a video? And that's, of course, a thrilling world, but it's not something we're going to see in the next 24 months or so. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to the clients of yours, do you see... If you were to weigh down what they are afraid of and what they are curious about or excited about, what's the percentage? Are people focusing on what's wrong and what they are afraid of and scared of and what can go wrong? Or are they still, maybe because of the circumstances, trying to figure out, okay, what's, what, it's, what it's new about that? How can I use make use of what is happening around? I mean... So two questions, who are my clients and what are they saying? But if I'm just going to focus on your question, what are my clients saying? The majority are treating the pandemic as an extreme event which will disappear. So they're trying to just cope and make contingency plans right now. Okay, we can't do this. Can we do it another way? This doesn't really work. Nobody has been in our office for nine months. What are we going to do about that? Nobody's making long-term plans around the current circumstances. Mm -hmm. So they are either coping 
And they're coping quite well, I would say. Um, I mean, a lot of them are saying, oh, we are doing phenomenally well despite or our employees claim to be happy. I mean, which, which is beautiful, right? It's, but it's like, you know, when people have uh, babies, I normally compare having babies to cutting your leg off because it's as irreversible and sometimes equally unpleasant. But they have similar, I mean, you, we know from happiness research, right, that people who lose a limb are first deeply miserable and then they slowly climb back and they can even go beyond and higher than the happiness level they had before losing their limb. Something similar is true for having babies, right? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's screwed my entire life up. I haven't slept in two years. Um, but it's an amazing feeling and it's happiness on a completely new level. And it's this, and I, and I think that coping mechanism is setting in, in the pandemic uh, for a lot of individuals and companies. We can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. We can't. So we've had to adapt and cope. I mean, I'd say the number of people who have been demonstrating are relatively few. The number of people who have been coping are quite numerous. Mm -hmm. How were you, how, how you were coping with that? How did the whole thing affect the way you live, work? I'm reminded of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's famous model, Dabda. Um, you know, she studied uh, patients that got uh, the message that they were going to die. And she famously divided it into five phases of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And it was the same for me. I remember in February, March 2020, I was in denial. Oh, we're, we're making too big a thing. Nothing's going to happen. And then I felt anger because I felt the world was stupid and wrong to just close everything down. And then um, I started bargaining and saying, maybe it's going to last until June or September or, we're, you know, and maybe part of me is still doing that. Maybe mm -hmm. some of my answers tonight is me bargaining. But then I became very depressed last spring and it showed itself by me being very passive. I remember I spent like six weeks playing Grand Theft Auto <laughs> on my children's PlayStation 4. And then I think I slowly started to grapple with a new reality, got into podcasting. I started writing. Finally, after five years of false starts, I got around to writing my next book, which oh, wow. is coming along nicely. So um, yeah, that's, that's how I coped with things. Davida. So it's not only acceptance at the end, but it's also a, a creative impulse that came out of it. Well, yeah, but, but I think coping is creativity, right? That's what it is. It's adapting, finding a new solution. Okay, so I can't do this anymore. I'll do it this way. Okay, yes. So I think coping is for every single person a creative impulse. And also, uh, when I was trying to figure out what my hearts want to ask you, one of the questions that I wrote down is what would have not had happened if not for COVID? What would not have happened? Yes. Okay, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm not sure I understand, but my, mm -hmm. my instinct would be to say Donald Trump would likely still have been president in the U.S., had it not been for COVID, that's pure speculation, but everything pointed towards a second term for him. Um, but he managed to make such a mess of um, Corona in the US that he was not, by a very slim margin, re-elected. Um, what else wouldn't have happened? So I'm going to try to see, um, I don't think I've ever heard in the past 12 months so many discussions about the future and the meaning of life and the purpose of society and the price of loneliness and the urgency of taking care of our old and frail. These were small conversations that some people were having. It was like a sect 
now it's the mainstream. It's literally what everyone from newspapers in Great Britain to Facebook channels in Poland are talking about. Um, and that would not have happened. We, we, I think we longed for an event. I sometimes say there was an event-shaped hole in society. Uh, we were longing for something. Um, I mean, a lot of people thought there was going to be a war. A lot of people thought that there were going to be such a big climate meltdown that the planet would end. So I think there was this yearning for something big for us to unite around. And perhaps the pandemic um, is it. Mm. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it, it wouldn't have happened. These conversations would not have aligned had it not been for the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, I totally and we are, some... we are. Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. There, Jonah, and, yeah, and we're united in that also. I mean, when we met in 2016, Poland, Poland's political discussions were quite different from Sweden. The Swedens were very different from France, etc. Now, it doesn't matter where and I read or whom I hear from, everybody's talking, you know, vaccination rate, you know, what might cost it, what might we learn. So we've been aligned. And that's, that's actually, you know, beautiful. Yeah. There I say it. Yeah. So it's, it's globalization, but on a spiritual level, not, mm -hmm. not necessarily physical. Yeah, that's beautifully Sorry, put. I, I never, yeah. no, 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 it, it, it was beautifully put, like globally, because, because, what I've noticed is that companies that approached me to do a training about this or that s suddenly <laughs> started asking for trainings around emotions and psychological safety and managing fear at work. And these topics would have, maybe not never, but would rarely uh, see daylight. Uh, they wouldn't be named the way they were named. Like, like who would have wanted to talk about dealing with fear um, in a tech company or in a... a uh, grocery store like very few people like the, the geeky ones mm. but uh, it opened it for me and for my um, services a sort of like a special gate like now they're ready to talk about it or they're aware that unless we talk about it we cannot move forward like we need to touch those topics so mm. in a part of me the psychological part of me I'm, I'm, I'm a psychologist so there's a part of me that says thank you Thank you. Because there was a long period in the business world that I think that people were repressing emotions, like saying, this is not professional, this is not what we're going to talk about, like, there's no space for that here. Whereas from 12, 12 months back, I think they were just um, pushed towards the emotion landscape, and we had to talk about those. And, and there were thousands of podcasts or, or, or trainings or even articles that I wrote about emotions that probably would have never happened. Do you mm. see the, the mm. same landscape? Yeah, you know, and, and I'm conscious just that we don't make it sound like this is a beautiful event, because <laughs> I guess I think I, believe, I I agree with you that the consequence for you, the the openness to emotion and well-being, and I I read it was a column now saying that you know we are literally a society in post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder now. Exactly. We will be, and I like that. But, but my question would be: Could it not have happened without all the pain and suffering that that the pandemic caused, both as a virus that actually killed the people, but also, of course, in the measures that were taken? And I think the verdict is still out there, right? I mean, I live in a country which has been notoriously different in the way they, mm -hmm. they are, they've been treating the pandemic. So they, and Sweden has been hated for that, and Sweden has been loved mm -hmm. for that. But whether it was the right thing to do, we probably won't know for years yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I see the same conversation in many other countries, right? Should the lockdowns have been quicker, slower, fewer, more? 
So and, and so it's not just a it's 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 a beautifully ugly event or an ugly beautiful event. There's that double-edged sword. But I I what you just said I think was I mean yeah it's it's that's a good thing. It's um I I remember when I started going into psychoanalysis when I was 22. Um, that talking about feelings. Um, it, words is all we have between ourselves and madness, right? It's yes. the only thing we have. Um, so that's a good thing. I agree with you. When you were trying to explain that it's that it's a it's a it's a special kind of event, both beautiful and ugly. I think I heard it from Glennon Doyle Melton. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She's an author, um, and she's been writing beautiful memoirs around her personal life, but also touching topics like um, uh, gay marriages, uh, Catholic uh, upbringing, and all these, you know, very important topics. And one of the things, one of the words that she created, or the words that I've heard from her, I don't know if she really created it, is that life is both brutal and beautiful. And she connected it and she said, life is brutal. <laughs> and I think the last 12 years, yeah, well, just brutal for both um, on the inside and on the outside. Um, so what was the biggest lesson uh, for you personally, but also for, for the people around you, if, if there's one you can take out of the 12 months? Um, well, if I, for the people, for society, I actually like to go back to a quote I remember reading after the financial crisis in 2008, mm. where they said, economics only exists to make people understand how little they can predict about reality. Uh, and I would say that the pandemic has taught us humility in the mm. face of future and predictions and hopefully about life and, and the value of human life. Um, for myself, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think I'm still struggling a bit. I mean, I am, I am 47 years old. I've been doing this work now, like I said, for 20 years. It, was, it brought me around the world. It made me, um, you know, uh, I earned a lot of money from doing it. And uh, some of the speeches were quite good. But it also took me away from my children. Um, it made my marriage fall apart, although me and my wife were able to patch it back up, back together through, through hard work. Um, and, and also it's quite, you know, traveling around giving talks is not a real job. <laughs> So I'm still struggling and thinking about what I'm going to spend the remaining 20 years of work life with. You know, what am I what what do I do and want to do more of? What do I do with less of? How can I work for something greater than myself? So, you know, to to disclose a secret, I've actually enrolled in the police academy in Sweden wow. to start. Uh, yeah, well, it's a departure. I'm not sure it will lead to me working as a policeman, but I needed, I did some research and it turned out that people when they're 60 that were happy, were happy because they worked with younger people. Mm -hmm. They work with something greater than themselves and their jobs were about helping others in some capacity. And that could be building a company. It could be doing um, a, a lot of philanthropic work. Or it could be in one of those, um, which is about saving lives and, and, and making people feel secure. So, yeah. have you seen the Netflix series, um, um, The Queen's Gambit? Yes. About chess? Yes. Yeah. So, yes. it's literally me enrolling in the police academy. It's like lying in the bed, looking yes. at the chess pieces on the roof and doing one move. I'm not sure where it's going to lead mm -hmm. me. So, I'm still in a bewilderment phase, if you will. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Congrats. Both on courage, also vulnerability, and also um, uh, not stopping the quest from happening. Like, like this, 
that's what I heard when you were saying that. I felt like there's a yearning, like what, what's the next chapter of my life is going to be all about? Like, like what's next? Since that, I loved my life, my, my previous life, the way it turned, but how can I make use of what I already know and put it into something, a different format, and then move forward? So I mm. think it's a, it's a, I guess it sometimes can be difficult, but it's a beautiful Brutiful. <laughs> brutiful. Yeah, brutiful. Yeah, brutiful. <laughs> no, I think, and I think, I think it was my dad who told me once, you need to have some kind of idea what your life will be like in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And too few people do that. We are, uh, something I took with me, I'm going I'm to sound like a Netflix junkie now, and I really am not. And I'm also going to sound like I, I'm a big fan of Tony Robbins. I'm not sure that I am. But I remember a quote from the Netflix movie, I'm Not Your Guru, where Tony Robbins said, people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. So combining that quote with my father's insight, I realized I need to have a good idea about my life at age 60. And the police academy, this brutal vision, is, uh, is one way to try to address that. Yeah, wow. Going back to Tony Robbins, um, I, I, I saw that one and I just, I was, it was just flipping through the, 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 the choices. I was like, nah, nah, nah. But there was one evening when I thought, ah, okay. And I just clicked and I watched the whole thing and I was like, okay, I need to reconsider this guy. I need to look at him in a different way because he's, he's, what I was really impressed is probably something that you're also mentioning right now, like, like using what he what he gathered throughout his life, creating some sort of a method and trying to make sense and help people make sense, not only in their life, but also in a sort of like a global scale. Um, and I was like, okay, okay. Uh, more humility on my side and, and more interest on, on his side. So yeah, I was really impressed. I think with that. people, a lot of people judge Tony Robbins from some of his followers who are treating him like a guru or like mm -hmm. it's some kind of sect. There is also a kind of pyramid scheme element, like you buy into certain levels, yeah. which doesn't feel that good. But I've seen Tony Robbins speak at the TED conference in Monterey back in 2007. And he was a really impressive guy, I have to say. He's charismatic, he's quick-witted, he's a fantastic speaker, strange body, strange face, powerful voice, there was something about him, um, but but I think um, it's always good to have a sense of space between yourself and people of authority, whether it's mm -hmm. a president or Tony Robbins or even a god, right? It's always have that space of judgment and and personal reflection. So mm -hmm. that's yeah, that's what I would say yeah. about yeah. Mr. Robbins. Let me uh, piggyback right on the God thing. Um, would you agree with something? Would you, would you agree with me saying that one of the fuels or the tools that is helping us out and probably is going to help us out in you know, two or three, four years time ahead is spirituality? Like the, the way we sort of trying to figure out like this is this is not the only thing that exists. Like there's something beyond that. Um, I know you're a fact-based person, research-based, so um, I'm, I'm doubly curious. What's your um, take on that? Um, so just saying what I've been you know, reading about this and the studies, um, you know, um, Actual partaking in some kind of religious ceremony is down in most countries mm -hmm. in Europe and um, what we sloppily call the Western world, which strangely includes Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, however, though, I mean, you'd, you'd have to say things like yoga or reading Jordan Peterson books. Um, are a lot like spirituality and spiritual movements. They're about being at one with yourself. They're about spiritual questions about meaning. 
So just like we had an event-shaped hole, we do have a meaning-shaped hole in society. Mm-hmm. I remember when I read um, uh, David Brooks' latest book, The Second Mountain. David Brooks is this right-wing columnist for the New York Times. Talk about a paradox. But he said something interesting. He said he had been studying graduation talks in America for the past couple of decades. And he joked, but there's some truth to it, but he joked and he said, because that's how we pass wisdom on through generations mm-hmm. in, in America. Right? When you, you come to a, a high school or university and you say, dear graduates, wear sunscreen. So, um, but he found a really interesting thing. He saw that the message that was conveyed from the early 90s onwards were always variations of you guys are fantastic, you are perfect, you're special, you're different, you're unique, keep doing you, keep going your own way. That is a morally bankrupt argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can for some people be a feel-good argument. Ooh, wow, I'm really, I'm 19 and I have red hair. I'm special. But the sense of duty that a society can provide, or, you know, when I was 19, I was, I was depressed. I was an unhappy person. Had somebody told me then that, hey, Magnus, you're perfect, it would have been disastrous. Like, mm-hmm. this is what perfection feels like. It is awful. So David Brooks's point, and I think the point I'm trying to make as well, is this. We forgot to create these sense of the bigger goals, of meaning, um, of bigger questions, and a sense of duty, uh, a sense of collective duty. And I think that we're, this is just speculation. You said that I'm a fact-based guy, and sometimes I'm not. So now I'm speculating. We know that self-reported anxiety, especially for young people, has gone up. That might be because people are more inclined to talk about it, or it might be because they are actually feeling worse than previously. We don't know. But what I would try to speculate is to say, if, if you're 21 and you've been told you're perfect, and there's all these opportunities, you can go, what, be what you like, you can love whom you like, you're, you're special, of course it's going to make you anxious. Of course it's going to leave you with a sense of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. That's speculation, that last part, um, but it's, um, it's a, I guess, worthy of discussion, or at least reflection. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, Brenna Brown, who you're probably familiar with, uh, she's a university professor and, and she, I don't know where I heard it, where she was talking to us when we were doing the workshops or was it some, some article that I read about her. She told, she, she's been teaching for like 20 years now and she, can, she, she, she said that she's been noticing a, sh- a, a shift or a tendency or a trend or a, or a notion that the younger generations have it more difficult when dealing with life challenges, when, when dealing with failures, when dealing with mistakes, because some of them were brought up the way you describe, like you're perfect, you're, everything you're doing is awesome, like, like way to go. So th- the skill of dealing with hardships is sort of not developed yet. So I guess maybe going back to what you said, it may be because they're more open to speak about it, but there's also because they're not equipped or not aware that um, light and dark <laughs> are pretty mm, cool, mm. both of them. Um, mm. No, and we, we do put, so there's two things. We put a large burden on people below the age of 25 to choose what they should study and mm-hmm. specialize in for life. And we know, biologically speaking, that the human brain is not fully baked until age 25. That's when you're finally ready to make long-term decisions and so on. It's the last capability of the brain to evolve. But the second thing, so we're doing a lot of burden in in sort of high school, university level 
but we're also leaving people alone in their 20s. Here's an interesting thing. There was a um, documentary in Sweden where they followed high school students every five years. So they started with high school graduates in 1992. And every five years, they would touch down and see, what, what are you guys doing? And there have been similar experiments in other countries, but I can just speak about this one. When they graduated in 1992, all of the kids were wild-eyed and dreamy and full of vision and courage. So if you watch it, you draw the conclusion that there doesn't really seem to be anything particularly wrong with lower-level education at least not back then. But when they checked in 10, 15 years later, the fire in the eyes had been extinguished. The dreams were for many gone. Um, some of them had had, you know, misfortune or accident, but it just seemed like some, some kind of positive energy was gone. And I have no, reason, I have no idea why that is, but I, but I sometimes speculate that we leave people alone in their 20s, and every successful person that I've met, it was in their 20s that they made important connections or met the person that changed their fortune or came up with the idea and found the courage to pursue it. And I guess it's the people who don't do that in their 20s, either because they're depressed or left alone or or uh, nobody's checking in with them, or nobody's giving them any demands. Um, so I, I'd say that there should be a university for people that comes after university. Yeah. Call it the school of life or something, or the school of, of dreams, I don't know. But, but something like that. I think it's needed. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's what you're um, actually pursuing right now, like the, the, a different kind of school. That fulfills something. Yeah, that but I'm 47, of. right? I mean, thank you for 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 putting grouping me with the 20s. Um, you know, I, I'm doing it for quite mature and not particularly romantic reasons. But I remember being in my 20s and being um, creatively restless, uh, emotionally unstable, and passionately pursuing either individuals that I could latch on to or ideas. And I, I kept falling in love over and over again with different kinds of people in various uh, um, states of um, ill consideration. Um, no, but, and I think I could have channeled that energy better had there been some kind of central, similar to what I went through in school and university. Mm -hmm. Mm. Would you, um, so I have thousands of questions right now, so I have to choose one. Mm. So if you were to, if there are 25 years old listening to it right now and watching it right now, what would be your um, advice for them if you're ready to give advice? Uh, or what would, you, what would you wish for them? Advice would be try to articulate more often what you're feeling, especially if it's pain or shame or guilt or negative feelings. Try to articulate that. Um, don't lie. Um, because if you start building a lie into your life at such a young age, it's going to lower your self-opinion and it's going to fuck up the foundation of so many things, relationship and careers and so on. So don't be afraid of the truth. Try to pursue it and, and, and speak the truth more often. Um, what would I wish for them? I, I have no idea. I wish they could get mm. the same... Um, you know, sense of freedom that I had growing up. Now, I know I'm contradicting myself here slightly. Uh, I don't necessarily say you're free and perfect and all that, but, but the sense of freedom, a free space where the, they get listened to and taken seriously, a free space mm -hmm. where they feel life is about 
myriad of things. It's not just about becoming one of three professions. Or, um, yeah, that, that's probably what I would wish. But, but I, above all, articulating and, and make a habit throughout your life of articulating mm-hmm. what you're feeling and when. Because that will help you, help you in so many situations. And since we're in an advice-giving mode, uh, what is your, if you were to point the future skill set or the skill set that we need for the future, what are the skills that are going to be sought after that we need right now as a, as people living on the earth? Hmm. So for the foreseeable future, computer coding you know, is just a limitless um, demand for. I mean, it's the most uh, future-proof job I can think of. But in terms of skills, though, the ability to understand the shortcomings of machines and code, um, both in terms of empathy, but also creativity, um, entrepreneurship, human touch, all these things. And that gap is going to be a whole range of skills in that gap to translate things between the machine, the computerized world, and the the world of people. Storytelling. I mean, stories... You're a master storyteller. I still go back to the to the presentation that you gave during this conference. I have it recorded on my phone because I was trying to prepare for the interview and I just go back to the funny stories you've shared. All the, yeah, it was oh, just brilliant. You. Yeah, it was just brilliant. Yeah, no, I think I think stories is what made me excel as a public speaker. But thank you. <laughs> but stories is how we learn. It's what a good teacher tells stories, a good leader tells stories, a good psychologist, an author, a writer, a poet, a politician tells stories. So invest in storytelling. Um, another skill set, which I think we're only trying to, you know, scratch the surface of is the ability to understand how systems fit together, mm-hmm. whether it's the systems of people working together in a large organization or organizations in a supply chain working together or the economy or the climate and how they fit together, you know, that kind of systems thinking and systems connectivity. Finally, I would say being unpredictable. I'm not sure if it's a skill, but the basis for human ingenuity, for comedy, for art, for anything we people value, even even the pandemic, if you will, even though it's not a person or a skill, you know, unpredictability is what keeps humans being human. It's what keeps us on our feet. It keeps us engaged. It makes us fearful. It makes us happy. It makes us laugh. So if we can translate unpredictability to a skill, I would say try to nourish that. Try to find it or find someone who can do it for you. Mm -hmm. Because people... um, you know, from from roller coasters to movies um, are willing to pay a lot of money mm-hmm. just for the thrill of the unpredictable. Yeah. And at the same time, I hear it all the time. Like, Joanna, I just want things to be predictable. I just want things to go back to the, the way you used to. I just want to be be sure of what's going to happen in a month or two or three. We so, we, we're so yearning for the, for the known that I think we're losing the skill of No, but I mean, you said it before, now. Joanna. You talked about the dual nature of life, uh, brutal and beautiful, right? And I, I mean, ancient Asian wisdom has that down with yin and yang, right? We want both. Esther Perel, the relationship um, psychologist, the Belgian relationship, she says it well. A good relationship is both security and adventure, right? And you have to negotiate both. If it's too much security, your relationship becomes boring, and your sex life too. If it's too much adventure, uh, you feel unsafe, and or or you you feel or you get harmed. So there's that tension, um, and I think something similar: the unpredictable with the predictable. A roller coaster doesn't actually kill you, and that's why people like it. 
they get in there, they sort of know they're going to survive, but it feels different and strange. So I think, I think balancing those tensions together, um, a very boring company has a hard time to get exciting things done. A very exciting company has a hard time to function because they don't have routines and processes and bureaucracy, which are there to maintain a certain equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I think the tension, um, you know, I always come back to on my wedding day, mm-hmm. I played um, With or Without You um, by U2 was the wedding dance, because I felt already then with my wife, I can't really live with her and I can't really live without her. And I think that tension has kept us going strong now for 18 years together. So, did it help you in the in the um, patch making mode and the uh... the patching things up? Um, nah, I'm not sure. Hmm. It was just painful. It was horrible and painful. Yet, um, I felt strangely alive during that person uh, during that time uh, that that period in my life. But it was it was just very very difficult as anyone who's been through relationship problems can attest yeah yeah i can attest for sure being in the relationship is all about um being (laughs) in the middle of excitement and and boredom and happiness and and sadness and lonesome and being with that person like at exactly the same moment so um and actually when i was which is impossible right which is impossible which Sorry, is, go on. You're interrupting. No, no. I just want to conclude with the when I was going through um, uh, uh, my divorce, I had a coaching session, or I was just having a conversation. I don't remember which one of those because I made friends with that coach, so I'm no longer. <laughs> I don't recall if it was a coaching session or just we were just chatting. And I asked her, like, like how did you? Because she was divorced too, and she was divorced, I think, two years after she got married, and then she entered a new relationship that lasted the whole adult life of hers. And I said, so how did you know, how did you know, when, when was it the right time to actually say, this is where I end this journey with you and I want to separate? And she said, she just, she just somehow knew it. Like there was like kind of intuition, a gut feeling, like she reached a point in which she no longer could pursue with that person. And I said, so how, how did that make you feel? And she said, <laughs> and she said, both scared as hell, but also freeing as fuck and she said it was just both at the same time because I think we human beings are capable of actually feeling both at the same time but it's just sometimes I assume that freedom scares us most than the fear itself that freedom is too scary for mm-hmm. some of us or at certain moments of life that we're um we just switch back to the fear mode because it's it's sort of constrained and it's formatted and you know what you're afraid of but when you touch on freedom it's like what do I cling to? So, um, yeah, I went back to the, down the memory lane. Like trying I, uh, to I would re- probably, no, I like it. No, I, I would probably say, I mean, evolutionary fear has a greater survival rate than freedom. I mean, the reason we might be hesitant to eat new foods or try new things is that our ancestors, the gene that said, I'll refrain, survived, whereas the person said, hey, I'm going to try that mushroom, died off. But you and I don't live necessarily with a a mortal fear now of being killed, God forbid. We are living in the sense of self-realization. Are we as happy as we can be? Are we as prosperous as we can be? Are we feeling the love that we are longing for? I went to uh, uh, my relationship therapist said something profound in its simplicity. She said, it's not a human right to have all of your demands satisfied. It's not. It's not a human right. You can communicate them and then it's up to other people if they want to fulfill them or not. But it's not a human right. And I think to live with a sense of shortcoming and accept that part of life will be a little bit less and more futile and just less of what you imagine it will be, I believe is, a, is an important key. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's why I'm happier at age 47 than I was at age 39. <laughs> yeah, and I think when you were, when you said what your therapist said, I went back to the book that is on my bookshelf and I've been I've been reading it from time to time, opening up, getting angry at what I read and then go back to the book and it's called Radical Acceptance. It's about accepting radically <laughs> what is happening in your life and and not fulfilling all the demands that I have like this and that and and that. Um, it's just a it's just a, a difficult task to to fulfill to do so I go back to like what if I radically accepted it what if I radically accepted it and just accepted it the way it is and not the way I wish it would be and and it's a it's a beautiful book <laughs> and it's a beautiful concept but it brings back me to a position of it is what it is what if you accepted exactly the way things are how would you feel if you did that and not just you know run after changing things and trying to figure things out and making him or her do it differently just radically accept it and just 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 move on well i think the word of the day that you taught me was beautiful right the brutal beautiful <laughs> and when you said what would it be like if i radically accepted it i'm like that truly would be beautiful yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes. What would you like me to wish you in for the next 10 years? Oh, I mean, I mean I, I'm now wrestling with, should I try to give a beautiful poetic answer or an honest answer? <laughs> um, Doing beautiful. If you you. Could, <laughs> well, if you could refill my wallet, because there's been a hole in it in the past year, <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> but it makes me sound like some greedy, short-sighted bastard. Um, yeah, no, you know what? Whenever I hear a foreigner's song, I want to know what love is, I kind of realized that I might never really have felt true love. Mm. And I wish I would do that in the coming 10 years. I don't know where it's going to come from. Well, from within, of course, but, but how and where and why. Um, yeah. So if you could wish me uh, love and money. <laughs> more, more, of, more of love and you know, the money. Just, just, the money will just come. refilling my wallet. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, if, if I have love. I'm not sure, but I, I, I think that would be um, if, I could, if I could gain a sense of calm in that aspect mm-hmm. um that would be nice because it's mm-hmm. not something i've ever felt mm-hmm. um, so i wish you yeah. i wish you as the as the saying as the, as, the, as the song goes i wish one day in the coming 10 years ahead of you that one day you're going to call me or email me and say joanna i i know what love is because i'm feeling it today and my wallet is full so you can right. add that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or one of the two, at least. Oh, one of the two, yeah. <laughs> what, would you, what would you like me to wish you, Joanna? What would you like me to wish you? Where are the people, people watching or listening in to, to this talk? Um, actually, I did an exercise yesterday on values. I was doing it with a group of teachers. I was, I was doing a training on courage, vulnerability in the, in the educational system. And when they went to breakout room sessions in Zoom... I had a bit of time looking at the at the workbook and thinking, okay, so if if I check in on the eleventh of uh, April, what what is what is the most important thing for me right now? And I thought love was going to be the answer, but funny enough, I came up with the answer that was joy, that I I wish more joy in my life, letting myself experience more joy and and trying things that will bring me joy that I I haven't tried before. So if you could wish me more joy in my life, that would be awesome. Mm. It's so interesting when you say that, because I, I realized that all the well-wishing have a happy birthday, a joyeux Noël, as they say in French, like a joyous Christmas. It's literally the most common thing we wish each other, but we don't really hear it. We don't yeah. think about it. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, Absolutely. Um, a joyful 2021 for the remainder of it and, and beyond. 
Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for spending time with, with me and people, not only in Poland, but uh, one of the comments came from uh, London. So I guess uh, you mentioning the London <laughs> underground system <laughs> was not just yeah. an example because some people are living there, actually. So okay. and there's one more comment wishing you love you, uh, Magnus. We wish you love. Hold on. I'm just going to post you. it. Love and money, and thank you for your time today and for Joanna Borjoy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank right. you. Good. So, I'll see you next, um, hopefully, next coming years uh, on a conference in Poland. Yeah, maybe. in Poland or Sweden or elsewhere, physically. Oh, this elsewhere. is such a, yes. we're, this is such an unworthy way of meeting, but it's the yes. best we can do right now. Yes, yes. So, thank you so much, and uh, I'll speak to you soon and check on uh, the love thing. <laughs> right. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Joanna. No to mam nadzieję, że Beautiful zostanie z Wami na lata. Oby tylko z racji Beautiful, ale też Brutal jest, myślę, taką częścią naszej codzienności, naszej rzeczywistości. Nie ma co udawać, że jest tylko jasno, ale też czasem bywa i ciemno i trudno, ale jedno i drugie jest nam potrzebne. Więc mam nadzieję, że to z Wami zostanie i też taka inspiracja, gotowością do transformacji, kiedy ta transformacja dzieje się na zewnątrz. My nie, nie pozostańmy jej bierni, tylko też w środku przeżywajmy swego rodzaju odrodzenie i nowy początek, kiedy na zewnątrz dzieje się jakiś koniec. Wszystkiego dobrego i do następnego odcinka. Talk to me like you talk to someone you love. Zapraszam, Joanna Chmura.